Let me spell a word for you. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> give it to me, give it to me, right? <laughs> yeah, respect. Respect, something, something we each kind of desire from one another. You know what I mean? Respect. It's, uh, it's also something that God desires and wants from each one of his image bearers. The Christian way of yielding our rights for one another uh, out of respect, it actually runs kind of perpendicular to, well, to a non-Christian secularized culture and environment that, that wants to inflate ego and wants to idolize successful performances. And the church, you know, boy, we're not immune to this. The church is not immune to disrespectful thinking, disrespectful filters. Indeed, it's a pretty challenging biblical ethic to think about against the American ethic. There's a collision that's going on between this level of respect. Welcome to the afternoon session. Chuck Faber, having served for 42 years at Boise Bible College, 28 years as our academic dean, is going to guide us this afternoon through another portion of Romans to the understanding at the heart of the matter of this idea of uh, respect. Okay, we're going to dive right in. We're going to go hard and we're going to go fast. And we're going to start with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then there's a parallel passage in the book of Colossians that says essentially the same thing. Lots of verses right over us, but there are some that give us a visceral reaction. And this is one of those. And I would encourage you to actually, in a sense, exegete your emotions and your responses to that because your responses are a result or indicate to some degree your concept of biblical authority, your concept of the biblical ethic, your concept of, uh, of, of the... the um, a biblical uh, ethics or authority. And then I want to take and pivot from that verse to the passage that we're going to be talking about today. But in the process of that, I want to put a picture in the background as a picture that will help us look at this again in a slightly different way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. The one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is, uh, is, is owed. And then you can actually bundle Ephesians 5 and those, that window sticker and a radar detector. And there are, I am confident, Christians who are at peace with all three of those at the same time. Now, just to confuse things just a little bit more, let's parse the window decal. 
So in this, of course, you've got my family. You've got the big gun that is apparently dad, and then you've got the, the wife and the kids uh, moving down the, uh, the, the line. But let's, let's replace the big gun with a portrait of dad. And let's have the other guns represent mom and the four kids and change the words to don't tread on me. What does that communicate? It's not what is the intended meaning of, of, of that window placard. I'm asking the question, what does it communicate? What would it communicate if we added the mom to the picture and your child had on their bedroom door this placard, don't tread on me? So the reason I bring all this up is because we live in a culture that is incredibly disrespectful. It is at the root, the nature of American psyche, I might say. I grew up in Japan where honor and respect was a huge part of that culture. And in Japan, you, how far you bow indicated your standing in society. And even the word for your brother, you had to recognize or identify whether he's an older brother or a younger brother. The structure of honor, all of that, respecting your dead ancestors, it's all built in. Then I came to the States and I was shocked. Just, I was actually flabbergasted at the disrespect that I see. And you just go to the entertainment. It doesn't, I mean, we can just go flying right through them. You can go to the Simpsons or you can go to Saturday Night Live. Or you can, you can go to the, the, the music that debases people or the music that disrespects people or disrespects institutions. And even religions are disrespected by American entertainment and music. And it doesn't, uh, the, the art world doesn't spare us either. Uh, in the art world, we have this crucifix in urine, actual urine, as a sign of disrespect for uh, the, the Christian faith. And of course, I don't need to remind you in the world of politics, disrespect is just inherent with our American culture. And sometimes it's kind of funny, and other times it is, it's, it's racist. It's just pure racist. It's not just, also, it's not just racist, it's symbolic violence that sometimes veers over into real violence. And in our culture world, our culture, culture world uh, wars, what we're dealing with is really an attack on the honor of institutions and even the, the flag which represents an institution. And this all comes careening into our vehicles and into our homes as we have an inherent resistance to authority. It's just inbred into us in America. And so that's the American context. Let's back up and let's get a biblical context uh, for the concept of authority. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, when you take the Ten Commandments, you divide them up in the first four commandments, you know, telling us that there's only one God and we don't worship him uh, with, a, with a form of material and we honor the Sabbath day. You go behind that all behind that is the concept of respect. God deserves respect. And with that respect comes submission. That's inherent in the idea of, of, of respect here. And then if you take the latter six commandments that tell us not to lie or, or commit adultery or steal or covet, all of those, you can distill all of those down to respect. You don't steal from people you respect. You respect truth. Respect is at the heart of it. And so you can say that in the New Testament, we're told that behind all the commandments is love. 
But I want to go back one step beyond that. I think the bedrock of love is respect. How do you love people you don't respect? And for the church, for Christians, how do you win people you do not respect? The discussion of respect in Scripture is very difficult to, to, to work with until we make a distinction bef- between performance-based res- uh, respect and position-based respect. Performance-based respect is respect in which you respect a person because they live well or because they can throw a ball well or they can act well or they're highly intelligent. They do something, and on the basis of what they do, we give them honor and respect. It's inherently conditional. Not just because it's based on whether or not they can do something well, it's also based on the fact that conditional respect, respect for for performance is inherently conditioned by whether or not we are going to yield it, whether we're going to give it. We are the ones who decide if a person is worthy of respect or not. So if I put four pictures up here, it's unlikely that you could possibly respect, with performance respect, you're not going to respect any more than two. You may not respect any of them. But the chances are very good that you can only respect two because only two are going to meet your criteria of what they ought to have done. And so performance respect, respect based on performance is really ultimately kind of in your hands. Each of us have some sense of what we meter out and what we dole out and what we, what we withhold. But there, there's a smattering in the New Testament, the Old Testament, of references to respect based on how a person lived or how, how, they, how, how they led or whatever. It's there. I'm going to acknowledge that it's there. But overwhelmingly in the New Testament, it is not, or in the Old New Testament in scriptures, the, the respect that God is calling us to exercise is not performance-based respect. It is position-based respect. You respect people on the basis of what position they hold. And at the bedrock of that is every human being is made in the image of God and worthy of respect. Yes, maybe the household of faith gets a little extra measure of respect, but it doesn't make any difference. Everybody, every human being deserves respect just by virtue of the position they hold as a child that is made in the image of God. Now, you take that 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 whole cluster of all of humanity and you do draw a circle in because there's another more elevated version of respect that is tied to particular individuals but here's the trick it's not really tied to the individuals it's tied to the position they hold and the starting point of this is respect for parents because respect for parents upholds the bedrock of the family And not only the parents, but also the leaders of the church. We're told to respect the leaders of the church. And then we're also told to respect those in government positions, government authority. Probably because some some form of structure and culture is better than total bedlam. And so we are told to respect those in authority. Now here's the thing. And we as human beings do a terrible job with this. The respect due to a person based on their possession is never inherent in the person themselves, the persons themselves. It is not transportable. It is is because of the fact that this person occupies a particular office. 
And it's not that they are better, they are more worthy, that in every aspect of life, they deserve more authority. And so I, I'll give you the illustration of a general. He may command a, a 100,000 people. I don't even know how many people a general would command. He could command a budget of millions, maybe even billions of dollars. And, but when his car is being driven down the road and it comes to that patch of asphalt with white stripes on it, occupied by an eight-year-old kid with a stop sign, that general had better stop because that kid can't do his job if he is not respected for the position that he holds. And it is an ugly thing when people who are given positions of authority and are given respect for that position of authority, for them there uh, then to take that authority and that respect and wear it as if it's something personal that they deserve. And it's ugly. I've seen this happen. Uh, the, the, probably the worst I ever saw it happen was in Japan. We were on a flight. My wife and I were on a flight uh, from Tokyo, I believe, up to Hokkaido. And a young, young man had an epileptic seizure and was on the floor having a seizure of that airplane. And this flight attendant, with great concern, came and was crouching over him, attending to him. And the dad being embarrassed, I'm sure. And yes, there's honor and respect in Japanese society, but he is a guy that took that sense of honor and respect and bore it as something that he himself deserved. And he literally took that flight attendant by the back of her jacket and threw her, literally threw her down the aisle. Well, that's 30 years ago. He got by with it then. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if he could still get by with that today. It is an ugly thing when people take that respect that is due to them in a position and then they own it as if that's something that they themselves have an inherent right to and then refuse to respect the authority and the position that a flight attendant in that plane has over that piece of real estate. It's an ugly thing. So it's this respect for position-based authority that we confront in Romans 13. That's what we run smack dab into. There isn't any, con any conversation about how well they're doing or how they're performing. It's based on the fact that these people are in a position of authority and there's one clear statement that shows up here and that is, very clearly, be in subjection. And boy, do we recoil from that. That is a hard one, especially for those of us in America. So now... Since we've raced through the whole Bible and raised a bunch of issues, let's ask the question, what in the world is this doing in the book of Romans, a book about grace? It's like, why would this even show up in the book of Romans? So this is a, a graph that I'm going to throw up here. It's too small to see, uh, to read the details. Don't worry about it. There's a point I want to make from it. So relax. If you want some of the details, just email me. I'll send you the slides. The book of Romans is about the desire that God has for us to walk a path of grace. And that yellow series of blocks in the middle of that graph has an arrow that's pointing to a destination that he's wanting us to, to hit, to arrive at. And some of us come from the bottom as people out of lawlessness, pagan living. And we enter into grace. Some of us come out of law-keeping like the Jews did. And we, we, we come into grace. And then God has this path he wants us to walk on. 
It is the hardest path in the world to walk because it's so easy to veer back into lawlessness, lawlessness or back into legalism. And so what he, what he does in the book of Romans, he, he tells us all that we're dead. Then he expounds on the whole concept of salvation by grace. And then he gets to chapter 9 through 11, which I think is basically going back to 1 through 3 because the Jews weren't quite dead yet. And so he said, no, you're dead. And then he gets to the passage that we're dealing with, which is the response of the Christian to the, to the walk of faith, which is intended, if you take the arrow, the last two verses of the book of Romans, discounting the doxology, which is the very last verse, it's all to bring us to a position of the, it's kind of a weird combination of words, to the obedience of faith. Faith, grace, but obedience. And when we look at this pathway and the, the difficulty that we have in navigating it, what I'm going to contend, uh, contend is that all through the book of Romans, those of us who live under grace are not immune to the call, to the desire of what I'm going to call lawlessness. It may not be debauchery, but it is Self-assertion, it is living for yourself. It is refusing to acknowledge, refusing to submit, refusing to give way or yield to other people. And it's all through the book of Romans. And we expect it to show up in Romans 1 through 3. In chapter 1, we see examples of, of these people who lived in lawless living. Those are the Gentiles. We totally expect that. But before he gets to the good stuff in chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3, he discloses the fact that even the the Jews are trying to justify lawless behavior. And then once you get into chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, as he's uh, working through the Old Testament history and things like that, we don't see a whole awful lot of addressing lawless behavior. But when we get to the Q&A section, which starts in chapter 6, when the heckler gets involved, right off the bat, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Looking for an excuse. Hey, I'm, I'm saved by grace. So are you saying I can't live without limits? And then we get to the section which talks about that illustration of this lady who's been married and then her husband dies. And that whole section there about the lady whose husband dies, the, the whole point of that is that there are no free agents in Christianity. You're either serving God or you're serving the flesh. You're serving God or you're serving Satan. You're serving the spirit or you're serving the flesh. There are no free agents. Grace does not release you to do whatever you please. And so you are slaves of the one whom you obey. And so he then calls us to a, a life of righteousness. And so in 619 just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, uh, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And so moving on into chapter 7, we've got the, the, the sort of the, the mind set on the spirit uh, versus the mind set on the flesh. And here again, we see that we're told that, hey, we've been released from the law, having died to that which we held us captive, so that we serve in a new way in the spirit. And then he, 
He just simply says in chapter 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. Why is this in a passage about, the, about grace? But if you flip over to the book of Galatians, where essentially chapters 5 and 6 are dealing with a lot of these same issues, and we, we see the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It's all still there. All of this stuff that we're talking about that's peppered all the way through the book of Romans, we see here, I've got bold face, uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. But back up before that, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And then moving back to the book of Romans, we get into this section, Romans 12 through 15, which should be that sort of that, um, it's, past the invitation hymn. It's past the altar call or whatever you want to call it. And now it's sort of the, hey, here's, here's, what, here's what's next. And in a book of grace to people who are trying to walk that path, remember I said that walk is so difficult to walk. Why is it even necessary to say, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment. Outdo one another in showing each other what? honor bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse don't be haughty but associate with the lowly why why is it necessary for us to even have this conversation don't repay evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all don't ever take the law into your own hands never if your enemy's hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him something to drink don't Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that sets the context. Everybody needs to be in subjection to governing authorities. It isn't just simply out of nowhere. He's been addressing this issue all the way through. And and I find it striking that we're moving into chapter 13. Why is it necessary for us as believers to hear the night is gone, the day is at hand? So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And my contention is this. James tells us that you can never take the leash off your tongue. But behind, what is it that's behind that tongue? It's your innate desire to have your way to control everything yourself. That is, it's that baser side of us that is there that is driving that feeling or that desire in us and Romans is calling us to keep that under control. Now Romans was written in the late 50s. Uh, 1 Peter's written in the late 60s just before Peter's killed and either just after or around the time that Paul is killed. And what I want you to see, I'm not going to talk about 1 Peter, I'm just going to read some verses. And what I want you to see is the book of 1 Peter addresses all the same issues that Romans does. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then Peter points to Jesus. For this you've been called because 
Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges, judges justly. And then we're back at it. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won by, without a word by the conduct of their wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing Honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling it, but on the contrary, bless. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And then finally, 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Resist him. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace himself will himself restore you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. I don't have to tell you we've been through a dark season in the United States, all around the world with covid We've had emergency authorizations. We've had mask mandates. We've had schools that are shut down. Uh, we've, we've got vaccine passports. We've got government overreach. Or you see a population that is in rebellion. I'm not here to tell you which side is right. I'm not here to tell you all the ins and outs of when it's right to rise up and when, when we, we sit quiet. I'll let the um, ethicists and theologians that are way better informed than me uh, deal with that. My point is this. Romans 13 is not including 13, 1 through 7 because God is concerned about your response to the government. Peter and Paul are way more concerned about what lies at the root of that desire to be disrespectful, to be rebellious, to be lawless, to be proud, to be self-absorbed, to resist boundaries. And right now, we live in a culture in which you can just see things winding up. Anger, rebellion, retribution, evening the scales, taking control. And there's a place for having a, a, a part in the discourse of where a nation goes. But I'm, concerned, I'm convinced that Peter and Paul would brush all that aside and say, look at your heart, watch your heart, watch your heart. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there is, no, there is no hope in retribution. There is no hope in political takeovers. There is no hope in vengeance. There's no hope in, in, in getting even. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the window sticker we need on our cars. Pray with me. Let's pray. We yield to you, O God, the God above all gods. We submit to you. And we're asking you, if you would, examine us. Examine us. We need a beacon of hope, but we need a beacon that will examine us of truth. We want to, as we yield to you, have a heart that's right and acceptable and good. Reveal to us where it's not. That we may know you and your heart more. Please examine us that we would live out the advice, the wisdom that Paul is asking us, that you are asking us to live out. So challenging and daunting today. So temper our hearts. Reveal to us where we need to allow you to do surgery, to heal us. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory through our frailty and through our struggle, your glory through our weakness. We pray in thanks for the living hope that we have in you. Thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.